Good morning. All right, come on. This is exciting. We got AK in the house speaking today, teaching. As exciting as this is, it's been a whole exciting week, you guys. We had Carry the Love in here earlier this week. Who was there for Carry the Love? Represent. We had five people say yes to Jesus. Five people. Hallelujah. We had some incredible things. Danny's here tonight. She has a great testimony. Literally hobbling to the brave love. Our dude Ryan offered her a ride. She was hobbling so bad. Gets to that evening, she wasn't hobbling anymore. I'm like, what in the world? She gives this credible testimony that God healed her knee. Boom! God's moving, you guys. God's all over this campus. He is moving. And today's message reflects that. And so um, I do want to share that after today's message, and you hear what Aaron has to teach, what God's speaking through him, I hope it convicts and presses your, Lord, uh, your heart to see the Lord rightly. There can only be one king, and he wants to be Lord of your life. And we're going to see that today, and we're going to do communion afterwards. I just want to give you a heads up. So get your heart in alignment with God's heart. Realize that he loves you so much that he's given everything to redeem this relationship with you. This is Paul's message continuing to go out to explain to people God's love for them and our need for God. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to pray over Aaron. Most of you know AK, and uh, if you get to hang out with him, you know him to, just to be a joyful friend, but a very deep and intentional friend, too. And I'm thankful to call him brother and friend, and I love his heart for God. I love his heart for the Word, and he's been preparing, and God's given him a message to speak today. So let me pray real quick, and we'll get started. God, I just thank mm -hmm. you for my brother, Aaron. I thank you that he loves you, his relationship with you. God, he's constantly pursuing you in new ways. God, I love to see him um, explore new opportunities, things that he's not used to or out of his comfort zone, and just to see you and be a part of what you're doing. God, including sharing a message. I've talked to Aaron in the past, and this is an, an awesome opportunity. He's done it before, but every time, what a humble unique joy to share your word with others. So Holy Spirit, speak through them and soften our hearts. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear this morning. And may your word stir us up to be on fire for you, God, mm -hmm. to take the good news and share it with others. We praise you for that in Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said? Amen. 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 Let's kick it off. Good morning. Turn to your neighbor. Say good morning. Turn to your other neighbor. Say, God loves you. Well, like Josh was saying, guys, last week was so much fun. Carry the Love came through. It's an international ministry pumping up people's excitement for Jesus, stirring hearts from the West Coast to the East Coast and around the world. So it was awesome. And between, like Josh was saying, between Monday night's worship and then Tuesday's evangelism, workshops, and culture shift, five people's lives were changed for Jesus. Is that not an amen? That's right. That's right. I know of at least two people that gave their lives to the Lord and at least three recommitted that they're like, yes, Jesus is dope and I want to follow that guy. So God's moving, you guys. He's moving this semester with redemption, with grace, with mercy, softening hearts, unveiling eyes, opening ears, awakening souls. 
And we have, we've been given that power. We have power together as his children. And we get to serve God and glorify God doing it. And is that not just awesome? A welcome to our first timers and guests this morning. I'm stoked you guys are with us. Um, welcome to our family, our Ohana. Um, I praise God you're here, and I just want to let you know that you are here for a reason. God has you here for a reason, to hear him, to hear his voice, and to respond in, in truth, in love, and faithfulness. Also, welcome back, Ohana! I'm stoked that we get to do this every month on campus and every week at Life Group in Rathskeller. It's been dope. God has been moving in that place. If you guys haven't made it out to Life Group, please do so. Man, we get wrecked by the Spirit. Always hear Carrie say, say in it. Um, <laughs> but it's awesome. We, we're learning about spiritual disciplines, and we're learning Hebrew. Not like extensively, but like a little bit. And it's good. It's good. All together in community. So before I get rolling on anything, if there's anything y'all remember from this morning, from me speaking, please, if you remember anything, let it be this. Let it be that God loves you. Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, he loves you, and he is ready with open arms to forgive you of what you've done wrong, just like he's forgiven me of what I've done wrong. You just have to ask him for that forgiveness. God himself wants to go through life with you. He wants to save you from the penalty of doing wrong. He wants you to turn to him, to trust in him, to have faith in him, in Jesus Christ, the one who God rose from the dead, and he invites you into eternal life with God himself. So don't let your pride today, don't let your pride, don't let your feelings of unworthiness, don't let anything stop you from asking about Jesus, how he changes and saves lives from Abraham to Peter to me and to so many in this room. Ask about Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Abba Father, oh Lord Adonai, we praise you this morning. Thank you for exhaling your spirit, your breath, your life into us this morning. You've given us purpose for another day to glorify you and to walk through the day with you. Thank you, God, for inviting us into that relationship, and we praise you for blessing us with an identity defined in you and not by this fleeting world. God, your children cry out to you this morning. We cry out to you for your protection, your assurance, your providence, for your healing, your grace, your mercy, your love. God, would you hear us, hear your children this morning. Be with us, that we would have our eyes fixed on you and you alone, on your ways, on your truth, that you'd mold our hearts to be like yours, that we'd be holy just like you are. Because, God, you are holy, you are righteous, you are everlasting and unchanging, you are beautiful and merciful, and you forgive us of our sin. God, forgive us of our disobedience, that you would see us through the lens of Jesus, and that you would burn away our sins. Soften our hearts, Lord, 
Soften our hearts toward you and toward one another, that we'd speak life and love and joy. Move in us. Move your spirit in us this morning, that you would continue to guide and direct our lives, our hearts, our minds, our tongues. Lord, be with your church across the world. Would you resurrect the spiritually dead? Would you give sight to the blind that they would see you? Would you give hearing to those who cannot hear? Would you open the defiant that they would listen to you? Would you soften hard hearts that they would find life and joy in you? Blind the enemy this week, God. Bring persecutors down as your footstool. And Lord Jesus, raise up your kingdom. Protect your children. Guide, comfort, care for, support, encourage, strengthen your children. To lay aside every hindrance, every sin that so easily ensnares us that we would run this race set before us with endurance. That our eyes would be on you, Jesus. You are perfecter and pioneer of our faith. You, Jesus, endured the cross. You despised the shame, and you now sit at the right hand of the throne of God, the throne of the Father, waiting for that day to return. Bless us, Lord, as we proclaim you. Bless all of your ministries at right state this week as we proclaim you. Bless H2O, bless AIA, bless Crew, Chi Alpha, Christians on Campus, IFI, Rock Campus Fellowship, all the new and current ministries and outreaches, all the Bible studies happening on this campus in your name. Lord, we praise you for all the work you're doing in and through us, for this campus, for your campus, for your children. Use us. Use us, Lord, in our obedience to meet the spiritually lost where they are, to show them your love, to show them that you change us for the better, that you change our path from eternity, from death to life, and life more abundant. Speak to us this morning, Lord. Speak to us throughout this week, throughout this month. Be in our midst, because our campus needs you. We need you, and we praise you, and we love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, y'all, if you've got your Bibles here, open them up. Acts 17, we're going to read through that in just a little bit. But before we do that, a little context here for y'all. This semester, we've been reading through the book of Acts. We get to follow the Holy Spirit's mission to reach the world through his apostles and disciples. We've been reading one chapter each week, and then we talk about it, like this morning at an Ohana service, or we discuss it amongst one another at house churches those other Sundays of the month. So Acts 16, little context before we get into 17, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, that's quite the gang we got rolling here, they adventure through Macedonia. Uh, they stayed in Philippi for a while, and that actually marked the spread of the gospel to Europe. It was super Eastern Europe, but it was, it was still Europe. It was modern-day Greece. Um, and Paul and, and the crew's evangelism, their church planting, their discipleship, 
from there in Philippi all the way through Corinth, it all takes place in eastern Greece, along the east coast, through Acts 18. So then, we're in Acts 17, and it opens with Paul, Silas, and Timothy heading to Thessalonica, which is a city with a rather rambunctious Jewish community. Um, Luke had stayed back in Philippi uh, to encourage and support the, the newly planted church there, Lydia's family, the, the jailer's family. Um, so yeah, let's read Acts 17 together, shall we? We have some fun words in here for me to not mess up. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus, I proclaim to you, is the Messiah. Some of them, they were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews, they became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they did not find them, they dragged out Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down came here too, and Jason, he's welcomed them. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. But after taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent women as well as men. But the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea. They came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of the foreign deities, because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenian and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. 
Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring." Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, having an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, overlooking the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this. To everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we, we would like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Lord, bless the reading of your word. Oh, there's so much to unpack, so much I could dissect in this. And I'm going to with a long-winded three-hour sermon. So I hope you guys are comfy, but not too comfy. It could be three hours. It, it won't be. So for the time we have, we're just going to walk through this chapter together, and we're going to camp out for a good bit in Paul's sermon to the Areopagus. So for the lead-up to that sermon... Acts 17 tells us of two cities that responded to the gospel of Jesus very differently. The first city, Thessalonica, Paul shared the suffering and the resurrection of Christ Jesus for an entire month with the Jews. Now, part of the Jewish community there heard Paul, accepted his message of salvation by Jesus with joy, but the other part of the Jewish community, violently rejected it. Violently rejected it. Now, the second city, Berea, was apparently like chock full of Jews who were excited to hear that the Messiah came. They confirmed Paul's message of Jesus' death and resurrection with Scripture, which would have only been the Old Testament for them, and many trusted in Jesus from their diligence. But the Thessalonian Jews, with all of their rambunctiousness, they came to Berea to violently reject the message of Christ a second time. So before I was even got to reading about Athens, this, I, I, would, I was like, there's a theme here, maybe. And I was trying to guess, like, what, what would happen if I hadn't read this before? 
And so I'm like, okay, well, will, will the majority of Jews in Athens accept the gospel like those in Berea? Or will they be split like those in Thessalonica? Even so, will the Thessalonian Jews, will they somehow track down Paul and riot in Athens too? But verse 18 gives us our answer. And it has nothing to do with Jews. We don't even know how they responded to the gospel in Athens. What we get to see is the Gentiles' response. And so in three cities, within 34 verses, we see a huge spectrum of people responding to the gospel of Christ, from violent rejection to excited acceptance, and in the middle, with some curious inquiries. But who, who started those curious inquiries? Huh? Who really kicked that off? The answer is Epicureans and Stoics. And we all know what that means, right? We're good to go? Yeah? No? Okay, well, so who are the Epicureans and Stoics? What, what, what do they believe? Why are they recorded in this passage? So I had to do research because I had never heard of Epicureanism outside of this passage. And there's a guy who lived in the 8th century. He was a Bible commenter, and he was the first English historian, which I thought was cool. His name is Bede, or Bede, I don't know. But this guy, Bede, he said that Epicureanism is a philosophy that, quote, put the happiness of humanity in the pleasure of the body alone. And Stoicism is a philosophy that placed the happiness of humanity solely in the virtue of the mind. Okay, kind of understanding that a little bit, right? So Epicureans, basically, they thought that the purpose of life was to experience peace through maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, and minimizing the trouble in your conscience. It's basically a reined in and controlled hedonism. You can look that up later. Um, and Epicureanism desired to remove any and all stress from life and uncomfortability. So they didn't believe in the afterlife or anything applicably spiritual. They believed that once you're dead, everything you, dead, ceases to exist. And they were against any kind of religion, any kind of gods, whether monotheistic or pantheistic. Now, being in the time that they were in, they still believed that the like Greek gods existed, but they were so distant, had so perfected Epicureanism, that they didn't care or even know about humanity. And so having no repercussions in the afterlife, if you can snip off once you're dead, you're dead, you don't have to stress about what you do in this lifetime. You just do what you want, don't worry about stress, and have fun. But that doesn't really work, does it? Now, for the Stoics, on the other hand, they believed that the purpose of life was to determine ethical living and peace with reasoning and logic by observing the universe without emotional involvement with life. So they were pantheistic in nature. They believed in the idea that nature or the universe was God and that the best way to live through life was to dispassionately endure. 
So contrasted to Epicureanism, which promoted feelings and comfort, Stoicism promoted logic and displeasure. Unlike Epicureanism's removal of all stress, Stoicism's goal was to align with the logos, which to them meant the observable natural law of the cosmos. And don't stress about anything else. So do you guys hear some of that conflict between Epicurean and Stoic philosophies? One is, well, enjoy the here and now, but the other says, endure the here and now so that you can be in line with the God nature. One says man has ultimate authority over life, but the other says man is submissive to nature. But here in Acts 17, we see both of these pagan worldviews questioning Paul because he's contradicting both of them with salvation in and through Jesus. Paul is saying, guys, there is one personal God which contradicted the Epicureans. And this God is not nature. He is not creation, also contradicting the Stoics. And then he threw in the whole God the Son coming to earth, dying, resurrecting from the dead, and both of the philosophies are going, what are you doing? Which brings us to the Rock of Ares, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and the council that met there, also called the Areopagus. But that, that ushers in a third worldview we're introduced to in this chapter. Got the Epicureans, got the Stoics, now we have the Greek pantheon. The Areopagus, or those who were in that council, the Areopagites, they were primarily interested in defending a Greek concept of the gods. You can kind of think of them as like a pagan Greek version of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, they both discussed and, and discerned civil, criminal, religious, philosophical matters. Okay, but what does this mean for Paul? We've got three different worldviews here. What's that mean for him? Well, it means he had a diverse audience. Some believed in distant, impersonal gods. Some believed creation is God. Some believed that the gods highlighted particular aspects of humanity or nature. So how does Paul preach the gospel to such a conflicting group that is still interested in what he's saying? Well, he, he starts off by complimenting them. He basically says, y'all, you guys, you guys are so religious. So religious, I see, that you have an altar for gods that you haven't even encountered yet. Phew, wow. So I'm here to share with you the God that's unknown to you. And so out the gate, they're probably thinking with a little ego boost, like, oh, thank you. I, uh, I, I am pretty religious. Thank you. But this next sentence that Paul says, he does turn everything upside down for the Greeks because he says that the unknown God that he is proclaiming to the Areopagus, this God is creator and ruler over everything. When Paul says he is Lord, the Greek word there is kurios. Try saying that five times. Kurios. And that means supreme in authority, controller, chief, sovereign. And so out the gate, Paul is saying, 
Guys, you even know that you're missing stuff in your religion. But what you're missing is even greater than you realized. You completely missed that God is one. He is not many. And you all are worshiping man-made religious constructs. So now they're probably listening in shock a little bit, huh? He just said, y'all are religious, but wrong. So Paul goes on to support this claim, this claim that God is above creation. He is not creation, and he is one. And he starts that off by saying, God isn't contained within creation, not man-made constructs, not gold, not silver, not wood, nothing you made. God isn't served by man. He is creator. He is sustainer, so server of mankind by giving life and breath and all things. And he starts all of that implicitly with Genesis because, you know, they're, they're Greek. They don't, they don't know what Genesis is but he's highlighting God as creator and sustainer. He made, past tense, everything, and gives, present tense, everything and everyone, life and breath and all things. So then after the dispersion from Babel, which they also would not have known, so he didn't mention Babel, God led people to create nations all over the world. He is the one who lets nations rise and fall. So God not only created the universe, not only sustains everything in it, but he also governs the universe. And what's more, God created all the nations from one man, Adam, Adam in Hebrew. So everyone has a common ancestor and are equal in value to God, which was countercultural to the Athenian belief they believed that they had originally been made separate from the rest of humanity. So they thought they were superior to everyone else. So Paul's saying, no, none of that, no. But then Paul goes on, and he says this weird part. I thought it sounded weird in the middle of everything. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So the first part of that potentially is a quote from this 7th century Greek boy and poet. His name is fun to say, Epimenides. Mm -hmm. And Epimenides writes that the Greek god um, Zeus lives forever and that mankind lives and moves and exists in Zeus. Now the second part of the quote is uh, quoted from a guy named Aratus, who is also a Greek poet, and Cleanthes, who helped kick off Stoicism as a philosophy. And both of these guys, when they wrote that line, were meaning that mankind is the offspring of Zeus. So Paul quotes these pagans for two reasons. One, the Areopagus knew these guys and had known them for like 600 years, but it also showed that all along the Greeks, the Greeks knew that they were children of a divine being, but they didn't yet know the living God. So Paul, he pulls that little snippet of truth. He brings that to light, and he proclaims the full truth. 
So Paul is basically saying, guys, hold on a minute here. If, if you, if we are the offspring of God, why do you worship what mankind has constructed? Why do you pursue these things that are not God? If we are made by God, why are you worshiping what you made rather than what made you? So Paul is blasting the climax of this message. He's saying that the true God, the God you have been ignorant of, he is no longer overlooking your lack of awareness of him. This God who is creator, is sustainer, he is governor and father of us. He is calling you to turn to him, to ask him for forgiveness of your disobedience, to trust in him and obey him because there's a judgment day and it's coming. And it's a day where the righteous will be separated from the wicked. But who are the righteous? Those who repent. Those who have faith in the man appointed by God, whom God has resurrected from the dead. Now, I'm going to throw in a cliche here. Now, come on, church. Who has God appointed and resurrected? Jesus, thank you. Sunday school answer. Woo! Yes. Jesus, Messiah, is the man who God appointed and resurrected. And Paul ends his message there. Me too. But it's interesting. It's interesting that Paul stops there. You know, he, he never said Jesus Christ. He didn't say sin. There's no mention of substitutionary and atoning sacrifice. How do you forget to mention substitutionary and atoning sacrifice? It just rolls off the tongue when you share the gospel. Why didn't he say that? They didn't know those words. They didn't know those concepts. So Paul has to relay the message of Christ in a way they can understand. They didn't yet understand Jesus' sacrifice was God pursuing them. They understood sacrifice to be mankind working to have favor from the gods. So saying Jesus sacrifices himself for you, it doesn't compute right out the gate. Not when Paul's talking to who knows how many hundreds of people. So Paul is saying there is one God who is the only creator, sustainer, governor, and father of us. God has been patient with you, but bro, time is up, and he's calling you. He's calling all of mankind to reject their idols and believe in him alone, because a day is coming where every person will be judged. And how will you know who to believe? Believe in the man who God has resurrected from the dead. He, he will point you to the true living God. And that's why we're here today. We're pointing other people to the living God. Just like Paul pointing the Areopagus to believe in the man whom God resurrected from death. And guess what, guys? God did this because he loves you. Jesus Christ, God the Son, he loves you. 
We're born into this world with this, this innate desire to put ourselves first, to do things that benefit ourselves the most, sometimes at the expense of others. But in doing so, as life goes on, as we are all well aware of, we keep seeking things to fulfill us. Whether that's money, drugs, alcohol, sex, porn, degrees, power, being seen as charitable, being a nurse or a doctor to save lives, building the best architecture, doing the socially correct thing for everyone to see, posing or posting the best pictures on Instagram or Be Real, playing a ton of video games, or even our significant others, our spouses, or our children. They never fully fulfill us, do they? There's always a time when these things fail us. Our desire is ever hungry, it's insatiable, it's infinite, and it's never satisfied for long. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Deep down, that feeling, whether we try to hide it or deny it, you guys know what I'm talking about. And that's just what's internal, we also have what's external, because look around, guys, this world's in chaos. It always has been. Injustices are everywhere. People are dying in ways we just feel is unnatural and wrong, whether that's disease or illness or murder or something else. People Good gracious. People are cheating on their spouses. They are abusing children. They're stealing from the poor and they're stealing from the wealthy. We're being lied to and people think that it's okay to let adults go and do the wrong thing. But they're like to the little kids, oh, well, don't do what they do, honey. We're going to teach you some morals and values. Is that not hypocritical? If you're going to teach one human something, why not call out another person on something else? Or the same thing for that matter. And this is just, this is just the, re the result that we see. That's each person putting our personal desires and ourselves before anything else. But it goes farther. It goes way farther. Because putting ourselves first or putting ourselves above others means that we are putting God second at most or sometimes way farther down on the list. We're putting ourselves above God. And from Scripture to Scripture, from cover to cover, Scripture speaks that God is a jealous God who will judge each human according to their works. But he's also the God of grace, of mercy, of love, of faithfulness, of forgiveness. So much so that he made a promise to Adam, that first human, Despite Adam's rejection of God from being first in Adam's life, God promised that he would provide a way to reconcile that torn relationship between Adam and God, between mankind and God. But for the meantime, Adam kicked out of God's presence, and that desire to put himself first got passed down to his sons, to his sons, to their sons. And so from Adam, every person in every nation for thousands of years to today struggles or actively pursues putting themselves first above anything else. 
So our works that we will be judged by one day, our works is whether or not we choose to do what we want instead of what God wants for us. We've all chosen ourselves over God, every single one of us. So we are all condemned by that measure, which means that after death on earth, you'll exist forever without life. Ain't that a concept for you? Because you chose in this life to reject God and his life-giving Jesus Christ. So what we choose in this life determines our eternity. But that isn't the whole story, right? Because Jesus came. God the Son himself allowed his infinity to be wrapped by finite flesh to be the way to reconciliation with God. And by God's decision, by his mercy, it is only through Jesus that we can be seen as choosing to put God first in our life. So God is ready with open arms to forgive you of what you've done wrong, to forgive you of your sin, just like he's forgiven me of my sin. You just have to ask him, for that forgiveness. You have to believe in Jesus that he not only saves you from hell, but he brings you into a real relationship an eternity with God himself forever. This isn't fire and brimstone. It's that and joy. You're not just saved from one. You're brought into the complete opposite side of the spectrum. So God wants to go through life with you. He wants to go through your time on earth with you. He wants to save you from spiritual death. He wants to spend eternity with you. And you can do that by trusting in him, by turning to him, by having faith in Jesus Christ, because he is the only one that can save you from condemnation. Jesus took your condemnation from you. That day he died on a cross, murdered by human hands, according to God's plan. And then by the power of God, he rose from the dead. Jesus conquered sin and death for you guys. He invites you into eternal life and a real relationship with God. And you're invited to say yes to that invitation. It's your choice. And your choice is yes or no. And if you want to talk more about that, you're like, oh, goodness, I do need to ask God for forgiveness. Find me during worship. Find me during lunch. Find my wife, Lena, or Josh, or whoever invited you here this morning. Do not let your pride, your feelings of unworthiness, your past, your present, or your religion or anything else, stop you from asking about Jesus, how he changes and saves lives, and how he can change and save your life. Because God loves you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so good. You are Adonai. You are Abba Father. You are Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Messiah. 
You are Ruach Yahweh, Holy Spirit of God. You are more than worthy of our praise. You are creator. You are sustainer. You are king and you are dad. You are provider and waymaker. You are holy. You are righteous. You are faithful and just and gracious and merciful. You are redeemer and friend. You are the God who sees us. You're the God who hears us. You're the God who cares for us, who pursues us, who guides us, responds to us. You are the God who loves us to the point of death on a cross and resurrection from the dead. You are from everlasting to everlasting, and your faithful love endures forever. God, we thank you. Thank you for all that you are, for all that you've done, for all that you are doing, and for all that you will do. Guide us to repentance, to that desire to be holy because you are holy. We would turn to our purpose of glorifying you and properly caring for this world that you've put us in charge over. Abba, Father, burn away our rebellion. Burn away our rebellion. Wash us clean, that we would be as fresh, as clean, as white, as fresh fallen snow. That we would be seen as pure and righteous in your eyes by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. God, we need you. Soften our hearts toward you and your good news. Harden our hearts toward sin and our selfish desires. <laughs> Guide us, God. Guide us that we would follow the path that is so hard to stay on. Hug us. Oh, Lord, we need your hugs. We need you to hold our hands through the highs and lows of this life. We need you, God. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So as the band comes up, I have a little challenge for y'all this morning. A challenge for everyone listening. Today and later this week, ask a Christian Ask someone who's been adopted into the family of God. Ask them how Jesus saved them and changed them. Ask them to share their testimony with you of how they chose to accept Jesus as the one who forgives their sin and reconciles them with God. And that means on the flip side for everybody here, you might be asked to share your testimony today or later this week. So if you have not done that before or haven't done that in a while, something to pray through and ask someone to come alongside you to show you how you can do that. And a bonus challenge for everyone who's here for Carry the Love and you're like, oh man, I want to apply stuff there and I want to apply stuff this morning. I challenge you guys to walk up to someone this week on campus and ask them, hey, this is like, seemingly random, but uh, I have a message I'd like to share with you. Do you have like two minutes or something? Maybe they'll say yes. And if so, that message to share with them, let it be your testimony. Let it be the gospel. Because Jesus is the light of the world, y'all. 
He is the salvation of humanity. So we have to get comfortable talking about Jesus. We have to. We have to push that boundary of it's uncomfortable too. It's time we get over it. Let's be comfortable in being uncomfortable. Guys, may God's grace and peace be with you this week. May he bless you guys. Would you guys stand with all of us as we worship God with our voices this morning?